Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. My name is Brandon Carper. I am a training designer. I'm Chad Hayfley. I'm a librarian who works with user experience and lots of web sort of other duties as assigned. <laughs> and today we're looking at a game called Life is Strange, which recently won the uh, Games for Change Game of the Year award. Among many other honors, I think. Among many other honors, yes. So the premise of this game is uh, you play a high school girl, Max, who goes to a school in the Pacific Northwest and she witnesses a girl being shot in the bathroom. Dramatic plot twist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> on the very first page. <laughs> uh, and this episode triggers in her the ability to rewind time. So the game kind of plays out like a choose-your-own-adventure where you can rewind and then pick a, another choice if you don't like the consequences of your actions. And a lot of the game I don't think is very uh, like Twitch-focused. There's not a lot of quick reaction time um, and things to rewind that way. It's more of a... I, li I like your emphasis on calling it a choose-your-own-adventure. It's kind of a... I don't want to say slow in plotting, but you can take your time a little bit as you go through it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think looking back at the... All the decisions that you make during the game, there's no uh, countdown to when you have to make a decision. You always get all the time in the world, uh, <laughs> fittingly enough, to, to make your decision. Um, and so that time manipulation mechanic then kind of persists through the rest of the game, except for a few choice moments where it gets taken away. Sure. So I've heard it compared to, well... We mentioned a choose-your-own-adventure book. It's like you hold your thumb in the place you just left. Because <laughs> I must find the best possible outcome. <laughs> or, or in case your choice led you to a page with two sentences, one of which uh, the Yeti eats you. Oh, that was my favorite ending. <laughs> right. um, that's kind of appropriate because one of the things in, in this game's rewind mechanic is, is you can only rewind so far. You only get one thumb to, <laughs> to, to hold in the pages before you uh, you lose your place. Uh Anyway, this game was interesting to me as a as training designer because it's applicable to a lot of soft skill simulations, and by soft skill I mean uh, those sexual harassment prevention trainings that I'm sure we've all had to take and come to know and love. Mm -hmm. um, also, leadership training, customer service training, all that stuff that involves uh, conversations and branching dialogue trees. And to me, sort of a different spin on it, I was really interested in kind of how it approaches a narrative and, and how it gives you choices in that narrative. I mean, uh, really any video game, when you get down to it, has choices in, in how you experience it, but some are more on rails than others. And this one, I think, struck an interesting balance between um, trying to tell you know a story that has a definitive beginning, middle, and end, but giving you some, some flexibility along the way. They did some interesting stuff we'll talk about as far as um, how they chose to give you those choices. Sure, sure. So one of the scenes that I like to talk about happens relatively early in the game. So you see someone get shot, you rewind time, then you have them not get shot, which is uh, a good choice as far as it goes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you, you leave, and one of the first big decisions you can make is whether or not to tell the principal about seeing a gun or not. So on your first playthrough, what did you do? My first playthrough, I was a, a good high school girl, and I told the principal about the gun. I think I did the same thing. Yeah. Did the, you go back and explore the other path? Um, I don't think I did. I think 
I think that one I just committed to it, and I I, I just walked out the door after that. I think um, in that one I, f- I found it hard to think of a situation where it would be a good idea to not tell the principal <laughs> that a student had a gun. <laughs> well, unless you're uh, thinking of conspiracy theories right out the gate, right? That's true, but this is early yet. We hadn't quite <laughs> dove into the craziness. Right, it's very early in the game. Um, and uh, that comes to one of the first things that I think is applicable uh, to training design, which is that there's not a, a simple, obvious answer <laughs> to, to whether to tell the principal about the, the gun or not. Um, one of the things that really brings my blood to a boil in <laughs> training is when you, you get to the multiple choice question and it's like, A, B, and C, do you do stupid stuff? Or answer D, do you do the right thing? And of course... <laughs> And of course you pick answer D, but in this game all of the choices uh, become equally plausible and there's really no right answer. And I think that's something that we could really learn from as as e-learning designers is to always give people plausible choices. That's a really good point. Most of the choices in the game, there was was never any answer that um, I kind of just ruled out entirely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the... The biggest thing about the rewind mechanic is, like we mentioned, you get to try out different options freely without having to replay through the whole game. Um, there's a lot of games out there with decisions you can make and branching paths, but this one is currently unique, I think, in that you get to rewind on the spot and try out the new thing before you get to the end of the chapter or the end of the game. And the, the Prince of Persia game a number of years ago had a kind of similar mechanic implemented differently. But have you seen it in other titles that I can't think of? Uh, I haven't. Um, right, so you're talking about the kind of the platformer that came out in the, the late mm-hmm. 90s. And that, that was nice because it, it kind of made <laughs> death not an experience that forced you to restart. You could just rewind to the time before you made the mistake. Yeah, there was no loading screen over and over again. Right, right. And and Life is Strange uh, kind of goes one beyond that, where you, you want to rewind, not just because you died, but maybe because you were curious <laughs> <laughs> uh, about what might have happened. Um, one reason I, I like this as a, a training designer is that it gives people the opportunity to get what has been called implicit feedback from their actions. So one of the books I'm a big fan of... Uh, in my career is called Building Expertise by Ruth Colvin Clark, and she talks about in training situations, there's two types of feedback. There's implicit feedback, which is seeing the natural consequences of your actions, and then there's instructional feedback, where someone just comes out on stage and says, oh, you did a wrong thing. (laughs) Error. Um, (laughs) Right. And they they both have their uses, but uh, implicit feedback, you know, actually being in a situation where you feel bad because you did a wrong thing can be a lot more powerful than just having a talking head telling you you did a wrong thing. So this rewind mechanic lets you kind of go through both branches and see the natural consequences and maybe makes you feel on a more emotional level than just a cognitive level. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It really kind of helps you internalize it a little bit. Right. Uh, and then we talked about how I made the, the decision about the gun, and then I walked out the door. Uh, I said that because the game limits how much you can rewind, <laughs> which means that whenever you leave a certain section, uh, the decision you made is at that point set in stone. You can't go back and change it after that point. 
Did you find that frustrating at all, Chad? I think at times, yes. There, there were definitely times where I wanted to explore further back than it would let me. Uh, but in some ways, it was freeing, maybe, in that I couldn't go too far back. Like, I couldn't spend hours exploring every, you know, if I change one thing 12 changes ago, how does it impact what I'm doing now and all those hundred and whatever possible outcomes? I, I can see why they made the decision to narrow those options a little bit. Yeah, I, I think it was a, a really very smart move, and maybe not an obvious one at first. Uh, it really helps you avoid what we sometimes call... Uh, in board game circles, analysis paralysis. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Where you have so many decisions to make and so much information to process that you literally uh, do nothing. Now, one of the things I found really interesting in the way I was playing the game is how one of my natural instincts was to try to optimize my playthrough, like to figure out what was the best possible outcome. And I eventually had to kind of give in and realize that this game is maybe structured to be played a little bit differently than that. I think going back to what you said about like what are the emotional consequences of what you've done and and what kind of world does that create and that maybe that was what what the hook is supposed to be. Right, right. And I I sometimes found myself wanting to yeah rewind past those breaks only because I missed the the collectible photographs you were supposed to, <laughs> <laughs> to take. Yeah, I didn't realize those existed until a little bit into the game and then I was hitting myself in the head. I guess that's another more obvious element of gamification that people think of is things to collect and points to get. Because uh, in, in the game, there's at the very beginning of each chapter, you can see all the little Easter egg photos you're supposed to take, and if you get them all, you get an achievement. Um, and sometimes I let myself just become too susceptible to that. I will say in the first chapter, maybe when I didn't quite understand how that there were those limits on how you could rewind yet, there's a section where you basically run through a courtyard outside the school, and there's, you know, six different people you can talk to and do things for and have interactions with. And I kind of blew past all of them, figuring I could rewind to it later after I saw what the next major scene was. And then I think once I got to the next major scene, I realized I couldn't go back and do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I missed out on some precious achievements. And like you said, the, the collectible photos and all that kind of by accident more than anything else. Yeah. And this is a case where I think that extrinsic motivation to explore the game kind of gets in the way of, you know, the, the intrinsic wanting to actually play the game for the story. You know, I, yeah. I'd like be in this dorm room of a girl who was heartbroken and crying because her, you know, an embarrassing video got posted on YouTube. And I'd be like, just, Hold on, I'll come cover you in a sec. I gotta find. <laughs> I gotta Easter see what's in your trash can. Hold on. <laughs> there, might, <laughs> there might be a photo of a squirrel in your trash can that I need to take. <laughs> right. So the the limit in the rewind helps with the analysis paralysis, like I mentioned. Um, and I think that also helps with if you're training people to deal with real life scenarios, right? Because when you're helping people make a decision in the moment. You probably want them to be thinking about the consequences of their decision in a few minutes, right? You don't want them to be thinking mm -hmm. about, oh, what could I have done 50 days ago to make me be in a better situation right now? Sure, you want it to be actionable. Right. So if you're designing the type of training where you, know, you want people to think on their feet, I think having this limited rewind can encourage them to think ahead just a little bit in the future without thinking so far back that they start thinking at a strategic level instead of a, uh, a tactical level. Yeah, and then so on the topic of kind of limiting what you can do and making you not overwhelmed with choices, I thought one of the other really nice touches were the little dots on the timeline that you see as you rewind. 
Yeah, there were kind of bookmarks for when things happened. Right, so the game is very clear about when you did a thing that makes a difference. So you're not, you know, you're walking through a, a hallway in the high school and you're kind of checking out people's lockers and you're seeing the kid get, you know, bullied and his lunch money stolen and, and so on. And and the game doesn't make you wonder, oh, should I have rewound and prevented that person from getting his lunch money stolen? You can just look at the timeline mm-hmm. and see, oh, the, no, there's no black dot there. That was not a thing I could have changed. I can just keep on moving along. But there are points in the game also where it kind of puts a focus on what those when it, when a big moment happens, like everything kind of pauses for a few of the choices. Oh, right, right, yeah. And there's there's the next tier of of big moments where, yeah, the the screen kind of goes black and white a bit, I think, and everything goes a bit fuzzy, mm-hmm. and you know, okay, this is a really important you know A or B decision. Which is smart from a design point, I think, because they're realizing that you're maybe going to want to take more time to think about that decision. Right. Right, it, it helps. It helps signal to the the player that you should give more thought to this than usual. So, so again, just giving people that indication of what the important thing is they need to think about is also helpful if you're designing a, a simulation because, you know, chances are, like, say you're doing customer service training or something, maybe you want to have someone be gathering information about the particular issue that they're researching for the person on the phone. You don't want to have to make them wonder. Uh, did I research the things in the right way? Is it the thing I said to the person that's making a difference? Is it my coworker that I was talking to at this certain time? Was that an important thing? You kind of want to focus them on what the important things were so that they're not thinking of all this extraneous information. Mm-hmm. And it helps them figure out what they can optimize in, in, in the training and simulation Right, exactly. exactly. And then I think the other thing that is really smart and something that uh, kind of helped me out of feeling intimidated by simulations is how the game handles the results of your choices. So whenever I think about a training simulation, I used to think about this just horrendous branching tree of, of options where okay, yeah. you have A and B at first, but then A has A, B, and C, and then each of those have two and three options. And before you know it, you know, you're, you're designing what is effectively, you know, a dozen trainings to account for all choices that someone might make. The game, instead of like forcing you into different paths because of the choices you make, just changes what happens a little bit <laughs> in later scenes. In a way that makes you still feel like what you did was important, but in a way that doesn't, that didn't make the design team just create totally new scenes that you wouldn't see unless you made a certain decision. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a practical consideration there. And, and you know how many how many resources do you have? How much money and time do you have in creating your your game or your simulation? Right, right. So, for example, when you have a choice about whether or not to tell the principal about the gun, you're never going to see, I think, a totally separate scene based on what you choose. But say you tell the principal about the gun, well, later in the episode, you find out that the principal is actually pretty close with the parents of the kid who had the gun. And the kid's parents tell him about the call that they got, and then the kid with the gun arrives in the parking lot to try to beat up you and your friend. <laughs> Which I think you would probably still arrive if, even if you uh, didn't tell on him. But he's especially he's especially probably. angry <laughs> because because you actually did. So you maybe get some different lines of dialogue in the scene or or something like that. But ultimately, you're at right. The same exactly, point. you're still in the same basic scene, but you get some different lines of of dialogue. And that's actually really manageable uh, in 
the software that a lot of people use for free learning today. I most often use a software called Articulate Storyline, and that software has the ability to program variables into the, the training, and you can just set the variables based on what people choose during the, the simulation or, or what have you. So instead of having to make, you know, totally separate slides with different information, you can just change the variable to be a different line of dialogue from, say, the customer or the person's boss, just referencing that, you know, what they did had an effect and show them what the results were. So this is the kind of thing that maybe is important to take into consideration when you're looking at tools for a project and seeing that these kind of features are baked into it or not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Some some tools definitely lend themselves more to the simulation aspect and some lend themselves more to more traditional types of training. And uh, so, Chad, you had another scene that interested you. Yeah, so shortly into episode two, well, actually, I think it may be toward the end of episode two, um, there's a character named Kate who leading up to that point is obviously not in a good place in her life. Um, every interaction you have with her, you see unpleasant things happening to her. Um, I believe like pictures were taken of her at a party and distributed around pictures. She would prefer other people not perhaps see uh, distributed widely. She is, you know, widely mocked on campus and things like that. And through a, a long series of events, you are, you end up on the rooftop in, is it a rainstorm? I believe yeah, I think it's a suitably moment. dramatic brainstorm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, which pops up a number of times throughout the game, but you know, this one, this one arrives uh, on cue, and through a long series of choices, you end up um, talking her down or not from jumping off the roof uh, and and choosing to end her life based based on that situation. And a lot of things come into play in that it's not as easy as or as simple as push one button to save her life, push another to decide to let her jump. Um, I, in fact, I think if, if you've been really mean to her to that point, do you not even get the option to save her, maybe? I, I can't remember. I don't know. I know that it gets very hard if you say, do not answer her call while mm-hmm. she's feeling suicidal. Yeah, there's, there's, f- there's fewer branches toward the, uh, the, um, the positive outcome of, mm-hmm. of that. Did you end up talking her down? I did. I did. And in fact, I thought that talking her down was just a foregone conclusion going through the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. But apparently it wasn't. Apparently she can actually jump off the, the roof. I was a little surprised to learn that also. Because she, then she does show up a fair amount through the later chapters. And I was trying to picture like if she was gone, back to the earlier thing you mentioned, like how many scenes would have to be different. And, right, and because, like that. because you go to visit her in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, if she jumped, maybe she just gets injured in that way, you know. People are still mad at you, but she's still alive, and she can still send you plot-important text messages. But I feel like I'm kind of glad they didn't take that route, because I feel like that would have been a cop-out in in the decision. I think the game does that in a clever way by making most of your interactions with her through text messages, I think, after episode That's a good two. Point. So it's not a, a huge development effort to have her presence be in there, except for that hospital scene, which... I guess kind of contradicts the point I was trying to make earlier. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Anytime. You're welcome. <laughs> Delete the last 30 seconds in your, in your editing. Um, and I'm trying to remember more about the hospital scene. Did anything integral happen there to the the broader plot, or was it more of a, like a, you know, side plots and the like? I just, I think it's a more we vow to get to the bottom of this type thing, and I don't know that okay. anything crucial is, is being revealed. So something that maybe you wouldn't have missed, or wouldn't have noticed if it, if it, if it wasn't there. Yeah, I think so. Um, but that the whole decision tree leading up to her, I thought was particularly leading up to whether or not she gets saved. I thought was particularly interesting because it's not as black and white as some of the other choices in the game. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and now, did you end up saving her on your first try? I, I did, actually. <laughs> so you stumbled, maybe had you been especially nice to her? Had you gone out of your way to be nice to her? Well, I uh, well, there, there's the one choice you make where you're with your other friend, and you can choose mm-hmm. whether to ignore your friend and take the phone call or not. And I did take the phone call. I think I did too. And there was the other crucial point where you get to choose between quoting the Old Testament to her or quoting the New Testament to her because she's, oh, a, she's yeah. a churchgoer. And I thought, well, I feel like I have a statistically better chance of saying a nice thing if I, if I go with the New Testament. <laughs> that was probably a wise call. So I think the combination of those two things. Less, less fire and brimstone <laughs> right. in, in the outcomes. Right. Um, did, did you did you not succeed the first time? I'm trying to remember exactly. I think I knew I really wanted to save her, and I think I did um, going through. But I had also gone out of my way to be nice to her at every opportunity, so I think that opened up more doors to the the positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I should look back at that conversation tree. And uh, one of the things I meant to mention earlier when you were talking uh, about the way it shows you the choices you've made and how it influences things is at the end of each chapter, you get that nice. Um, view of how everyone else made the decisions which i i thought was fascinating to look at right yeah at the end of the each chapter yeah it shows you the the list of i guess big big decisions and small decisions mm-hmm. like there's a, a character in every chapter she's about to get hit by a football or <laughs> she's a, the most unfortunate person in the world <laughs> uh yeah and it'll it'll show how many people saved her and did you save her um mm-hmm. And that, that's another, you know, more common gamification element is is showing your decisions next to other people's decisions and giving you that yeah. comparison. So it might say, you know, 78% of people uh, saved Kate from jumping off the roof, or I'm making up numbers, but whatever it was. So it was, it, um, most of the time I think I was with the majority, but occasionally I would be with the minority, and it kind of made me question a little bit um, why I made different choices than most people who played the game. Right, right. And I think the one thing that my wife and I found very... Well, I guess interesting was that most of the choices, they're like, uh, more or less 50-50 or maybe 60-40 mm-hmm. one way or the other. But the, yeah. the one choice that was like 80-20 was um, whether or not you chose to look at the results of someone's pregnancy test. In the oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and 80% of people were too principled to even look. Well, but no, that means 80% of people looked at it, then rewound and chose not to look at it. Oh, oh okay. Yes. Good point. <laughs> I don't know. That would be my interpretation of it, at least. Good point. <laughs> but some of the other stuff in the game I found really interesting from kind of an information science and brain science perspective. Uh, one thing I kept thinking of as I was playing through is there was a study in 2008 at the Max Planck Institute um, where basically they were able to see with an MRI that people's decisions are made subconsciously up to about 10 seconds before they take an action. And I kind of started wondering how that would play into this into the structure of the game. And a lot of what I'm going to say here, I don't necessarily think the game designers took it into account when they made it, but it's kind of interesting to look at from a, a critical perspective. Like, how does this line up with you know what we know about brain science and information theory and the like? So I'm not saying that you know they based the game off of this you know, study from 2008 or whatever. But it, it made me think it was interesting about how I think very few of the choices in the game tended to jump out at you out of nowhere. Uh, I think there there tended to be a build-up to it, or at least the ones that mattered anyway. You know, there's there's always the, the little things. Um, and it, with the ability to rewind also maybe let you build in a little bit more of that 7 to 10 seconds to, 
you know, subconsciously give your subconscious mind time to arrive at whatever processing time um, it needed to do. So is this like the thing where you should always make the answer on the test that you first thought you should have made instead of second-guessing yourself? Is this a similar <laughs> principle? I don't know. It might depend on how quickly you read the question. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. I hadn't thought but, of that. What, was the study more about subconscious choices versus conscious choices, or mm-hmm. was it more well, about... It, the angle they seemed to take was that you could, if you you know had an MRI view into someone's brain, you could tell what decision they were going to make before they made it. Mm-hmm. Before the person and, was even aware that they were mm-hmm. going to make that choice. Yeah, okay. before they were aware of it. And to match up with gaming a little bit more, even the, the study asked them to push one button or another button, essentially. And they could tell with a significant accuracy what button they were going to push ahead of time. Um, and So I don't know exactly how that would play into the design of this game in particular, but for anything with a branching narrative, it's um, it just kind of highlights the need to provide supporting details and build up to something rather than, um, you know, Yeti jumps out of nowhere. What do you do? (laughs) (laughs) Although that would be entertaining in its own (laughs) way, I'm sure. And, and that's where I find thinking about this is particularly interesting because, you know, what's considered to, you know, align with practices doesn't necessarily always, or or align with what we know about the brain. It doesn't always necessarily mean that's best for the narrative you're creating Mm -hmm. or, um, because, you know, maybe you do want that that quick decision because maybe you want to jostle someone um, you know out of their comfort zone and, and doing something without as much buildup could provide that opportunity in what you're doing that reminds me of uh, when I used to do a lot of stand-up teaching and training we would be told to after you ask a question wait you know three or four seconds before you assume no one's going to answer um, <laughs> Bueller, Bueller. Right. Well, because <laughs> a lot of novice teachers will ask a question, and unless they hear an answer, you know, right away, they they jump on to the next thing because they get worried no one's going to respond. But a big part of learning how to teach for me was asking a question and then standing there looking at everyone awkwardly until someone <laughs> letting the silence do its work. Right. Right. Uh, it also reminds me of um, I'm a fan of pop scientist Malcolm Gladwell yes, and uh, his book Blink where I, I remember the opening part about, I think he was talking about art forgery. There would be people who could just tell right away that a piece of art was not real and they couldn't quite explain it and it wouldn't be borne out until a long time later after a lot of you know scientific study of the piece, but those people's instincts were often correct even though they couldn't articulate why. Were these people who were um, novices in in the world of art forgeries? No, it was uh they were experts. So it it was it was going toward the point of these people had been so immersed in the art world that it had worked. You know, at, as you do when you become an expert, it works from your conscious down into your your subconscious and your more reptilian, reflexive brain, right? Where you you mm-hmm. know something is true, you know what to do, but you don't you don't have a thought to articulate it really. It just kind of becomes background to you. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure how that plays into the the game exactly, but you did mention earlier that yeah, it gives you some time to consider your, your choices before you actually have to pick one. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if, if you're, you know, this game is designed to be kind of exploring a branching narrative by its nature, but if something is a little more locked down, uh, if, you know, you maybe due to limited development resources or something along those lines, you can't provide as many of those branching choices. Mm. Um, 
that you can, you know, maybe attach an MRI machine to your game. No, uh, but find other ways to kind of uh, herd herd your players or, or participants down a path a little bit more without making it feel like you're hurting them by doing it subconsciously. Oh, so if you spend a lot of development resources on a certain path, maybe <laughs> not <laughs> yeah, give them as this much. This is where the cool stuff is. <laughs> maybe not give them as much time to uh, go down the other path. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> Another thing I was thinking about, and this is maybe more general, and again, not super specific to this game, but so there's the main game you play through, and then there's a lot of supplementary material that arrives as text. There's text messages that you receive from different characters. Um, there's Max's, the main character's journal, that you can read through. Um, I'm trying to think, were there other kind of bonus materials along the way? Yeah, the text messages, the the journals. I mean, there's a lot of just stuff you can examine as you're walking through the hallways. Oh yeah, all the posters and signs and things like that that I found myself obsessively reading. Yeah, as, as I went through. <laughs> yeah, there like. might be important details. <laughs> um, there might be something really funny at the end of this hallway. I just have to read every <laughs> single poster. And that was one place where I think I'm a little critical of the game design in some ways. Was that I? It pulled me out of the narrative a lot to feel like I had to go through these different interfaces and different thing ways they've created to read this content. Um, you know, the way a lot of people read online, a lot of studies have shown is they don't read every word. They uh, they skim, you know. They look for bullet points. They look. F they might read a couple of lines in each paragraph as they go. So if you do good writing for the web and other other media, you can take that into account as you structure your content. And I'm not sure the game did a great job of that. Uh, like when you get text messages from a character, you have to kind of navigate through a phone interface to read mm, them all. Mm -hmm. Like there, there was no way to just kind of get an overview of things um, because th this was all material that was incidental to the plot for the most part. You know, someone might send you a text message that is different depending on the choice you made, but ultimately you don't, you don't have to read that to go forward. But I, I felt like I did to some degree and, and getting to all of them um, took a lot of um, extra button presses that I, that I wish it did not. Well, that's interesting because I know more old fashioned games would just give you like, the big text dump, capital yeah. T, capital D, right? Like, I was playing a game called Sunless Sea. It's a simulation of being a captain of a ship in an underground ocean. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> because one day bats arrived and picked up the city of London and carried it underground. I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, we all knew it was going to happen someday. Well, I guess insert Brexit joke here. <laughs> so that game presents you with just huge walls of text that of, of conversations that take you a couple minutes to read, right? And it's, it was just such a big adjustment for me to go from like the little short snippets you might see in a game like Life is Strange to actually reading legitimate paragraphs in this, mm -hmm. this story. So do you think Life is Strange would have been better if it had come a little bit back up the spectrum a bit and kind of put more of its information in one place instead of forcing you to go find, like, one sentence here and one sentence there everywhere? I think there's a balancing act to it. Uh, like, So a lot of this material was very supplementary in nature to the, the main narrative and, and the main decisions and choices that you're going through. And I, I wonder if maybe things that are supplementary might lend themselves better toward quick browsing. So, you know, you can, you can dip in and dip out of it and get a taste of what's going on. And um, I thought the interface they chose in, in this particular um, option made it made me feel like I was doing something important. And, you know, you had to bring out Max's phone and, and look through everything. And in some ways it was a little immersive to 
feel a little bit more like you are her and you are going through this experience. Um, but I, it also kind of pulled me out of the narrative in, in a lot of ways. Right, because you, again, you have to kind of pause your interest in the mm-hmm. story to go look at, you know, every single little whiteboard on the, the <laughs> yeah. territory or, or whatever. Or, you know, maybe if, if they wanted to keep the phone interface for text, you know, you know, you can design your own smartphone interface at that point. That's the nice thing about doing a game. Uh, and, you know, put all the text on one screen so I can see them all instead of having to dip in and out of each conversation individually. You know, little things like that that would have increased the, the flow and the ability to skim all that text. Yeah, and, and I do wish that more of those little supplementary things were a little bit more entertaining, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there, there were a couple things that made me laugh out loud and chuckle, but for the amount of kind of background environmental stuff that was in the game, I wish just maybe a higher percentage was more just fun to read or a bit more witty. It's a good point, because they obviously put a lot of time and effort into, you know, the graphic design on the posters, and somebody had to write all the text, and you're right, some of it was just kind of there. Yeah, I will say, though, from the perspective of someone who just grinds through a lot of e-learning sometimes, the ability to it's just like a gift from the world now that it's. I, I have a very low cost way of simulating human interaction through. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> through text messages, right? I don't have to simulate a phone conversation or an in-person conversation or a memo or something. You know, I can just simulate a text message and you know, just 140 characters, and that's like I'm immersing someone in the real world. <laughs> because it's real. Because it's, it's not a limitation. It's real. <laughs> but yeah, and I did appreciate that. I mean, at least the text messages stuck around. So again, it's a balancing act. You know, they could have gone to the opposite extreme and only shown me, you know, you could only read each each message as it comes in. But they they did keep the archive that you could go back through and see things which both preserved the immersion a little bit, um, but also just wasn't quite as skimmable as as I wish it would have been. And the other thing that, um, you know, every, if we talk about other games, I guarantee you I will bring up this book in almost every conversation we have, um, but Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think um, mm-hmm. book, which is kind of the, one of the seminal works about um, how to design things in a usable fashion, essentially, and I do a lot of usability testing in my job and end up referring to it over and over again. Um, but in this case, I was thinking a lot about how uh, he emphasizes, you know, using plain language to label things. So if I think one of his first examples is if you're labeling a job section on a website, think about language people use to label it. Call it jobs. Don't call it employment <laughs> opportunities. Or uh, his his worst example was something called Jobo-rama. You know, when you try to be cute in your labels, I guess. But, you know, uh, keep it simple. Stupid is a classic for a reason. Um and this is, I think I mentioned earlier how some of the things the game does don't necessarily match with how we think the brain works, but that's not necessarily a bad thing if it fits the point you're trying to make. And it's good to understand how people might react to things so you can then, you know, manipulate it and, and try to get the reactions you want out of things. So Steve Krug would say you should clearly label everything to have a usable interface. Um, but the consequences to your actions in Life is Strange are not clearly labeled all of the time. You know, again, it's not as simple as um, push one button for someone to live, another button for, for Kate to jump off the roof. Uh, you, you don't necessarily know exactly what the outcome's going to be until it happens. And so that made me think more about the choices in some ways, I think, even though things weren't clearly labeled, because I had to ask myself, what influence are these things going to have down the road? 
I think there's a choice at one point you have to choose what you have for breakfast. And I remember like, I was trying to think like, why are they asking me this? It must mean something. Do I want the eggs or do I want the pancakes? Whatever choices they were. And I think I actually rewound to try the different <laughs> outcomes of it. <laughs> and, and now if that had been clearly labeled and, and the game does this sometimes, like you said, it'll point out through those little tick marks in the rewind screen or, you know, point out the things are important choices, but there's no opposite to that. It doesn't tell you this is not an important choice uh, which i thought was an interesting choice in how they labeled everything oh so did, did it label game. did it label eggs versus pancakes as a an important <laughs> like hey this time? doesn't matter <laughs> or, yeah no but maybe it should have been <laughs> would have been great if you eat the eggs you don't like them you eat the pancakes you don't like them and then you get a special <laughs> then you get a third option having looked back on <laughs> your past mistakes and you, we put the eggs on you, the pancakes you, you want you and... unlock waffles or eggs benedict yeah. or something <laughs> <laughs> now i want to go back and retry that scene <laughs> again i think that's a really interesting point um kind of makes me think about the difference between writing instructional materials and creating art. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of, well, I don't know about a lot, some artists will tell you that part of making art is leaving kind of an empty space for your, your viewer or your reader to insert themselves and to bring their own experiences and their own thoughts and their own interpretations and kind of that meeting of your ideas and their ideas is what makes capital A art. <laughs> and I think... I mean, especially when, when it comes to training design, I don't often think of myself as an artist. But when you're trying to engage with people emotionally and get them to think a, a different way or, or, be, or maybe behave differently, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad idea, right? To, to not label everything exactly according to what it's going to do or what it's going to achieve, but to encourage more interpretation from the people who are, are using your product. Mm -hmm. Which I think then points back to the time manipulation mechanic of this game that you can then feel free to explore what those different consequences are right exactly did you have something here about unreliable memory oh yes i skipped over that one um so elizabeth loftus is a researcher i think she's well she's in the pacific northwest somewhere along like this game so synchronicity there maybe uh, but she's done a lot of research into what memory is and I think she kind of made her name she's one of, one of the central figures in you know proving that eyewitness testimony is not necessarily something that's accurate all of the time and called can be called into question in court etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but one of her central things that she's come about in her research is that the act of remembering involves reconstructing the memory so every time you remember something it can change a little bit and it's a movie I haven't seen in forever, but Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I mm -hmm. think, kind of gets at some of these issues also. But it, as I was playing through Life is Strange, I started realizing that the game, whether this was a conscious decision in the designers or not, was playing that out in a way that, you know, I kind of thought of rewinding time and trying something else as revisiting a memory, and then you can change what you do as you go through it. It was, I don't know that there's any exact uh, lessons you can take away from that is as far as designing training or 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 gaming experiences but it was really interesting to me as uh as a perspective on memory it's was this more about memories or was it more about time manipulation i, d I don't know that that's a, a question i was able to answer yeah that's interesting because later in the game uh memories become more important through a, mm -hmm. a mechanic that lets you travel back in time through through photographs yes um, yeah, it reminds me, there was a, a song lyric from, I think his name was Josh Joplin, who uh, said that memories are like cassette players, they eat your favorite tapes. 
<laughs> That's pretty perfect. And in the case of Life is Strange, you end up changing those memories and then regretting it, at least in one very major um, point. Yeah, that's a good point. And that kind of becomes the main theme of the game later is second-guessing yourself. And would you necessarily want to go back in time and change your actions even if you could? I think that's veering more into existentialist uh, discussion. Then. <laughs> Check out our other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon to an internet near you. So, well, yeah, I think to to wrap up, what are your main main takeaways, Chad? I think that the time manipulation is something I wish I saw in more games. Was what I came away at the end of this game thinking, uh, not necessarily as a central mechanic to the game like it is in Life is Strange, but I would love to, without um, you know having to revisit a loading screen and kind of manage different bookmarks through a process as I go. There's a lot of games in other, and training systems I've gone through, simulations, etc., where I wish I could just kind of experiment and play with the different options. And I think Life is Strange does that really well. Yeah, I agree. I think I think for me the big takeaways are, like you said, let people see the, the natural results of their, their actions and maybe experiment. Because that, that's what for training is about for me a lot of times mm-hmm. at the end of the day is giving people a safe space to experiment and make decisions that they aren't able to make in the real world necessarily. By contrasting the different outcomes, uh, you can see exactly what factors, I think you mentioned this earlier, um, actually played into those different outcomes and seeing what has a consequence, what doesn't, what were the big things, what were the little things, etc. It helps, by being able to see those different branches helps you weigh what the choices were. Right, in a much more powerful way than just, you know, someone saying, you did the right thing, bud. <laughs> Gold star for you. <laughs> so that letting people see the, the consequences and then also just kind of limiting the amount of information they have to process by just signaling where the important moments are and just restricting how many choices they they have to make so they can really focus on what you, you want them to, to see. So in the end, would you say it's worthy of all the critical praise it's received? Yeah, I think so. It w- it was pretty decent. I'm glad I played it. Uh, I was listening to some podcasts who called it the the most important game of of the year, possibly. And I don't know that I would go that far, but it was definitely interesting and, and thought provoking, and I would recommend it to anybody interested in a good time or seeing what takeaways you can get for you know, like we were saying, the information science world or the the training world. And we should mention that uh, just this week, I think the first episode of the game is now free. So anyone can can go and check out at least a bit of the experience. Yeah, you can uh, play it on popular game downloading platform Steam. <laughs> it's in five episodes, and the first one is now free. And I think it's also free on Xbox and maybe PlayStation also. So if you would like to learn more about the topics we were talking about, I mentioned uh, the book of building expertise by Ruth Colvin Clark. Uh, there's another instructional designer that I'm a big fan of. Her name is Kathy Moore. She has several blog posts on developing training scenarios. She has a very fascinating one on simulating the experience of a member of the U.S. Army meeting with people in Afghanistan that gets into some very complex branching scenarios that uh, I'd recommend anyone interested in the topic go out and, and have a look. I mentioned Steve Krug's book, um, Don't Make Me Think. He's got some others on the topic also. They're excellent if you're interested in usability testing and kind of common sense design. Uh, the the 
MRI decision-making study I mentioned was called Unconscious Determinants of Free Decisions in the Human Brain. It's a kind of quintessentially academic title uh, from 2008 in the journal Nature Neuroscience, if you're interested in, in reading more about that test. So that's going to do it for us. Uh, this has been Gamification Unlocked. Please comment, like, share. And I've been Brandon Carper. And I still am Chad Hafley. What's a good closing line, Chad? I just blanked. Uh, so long. <laughs> Keep watching the skies. Have a good day or night. Goodbye.